1: Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CutterEconomicForum.com. This
2: is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio.
3: New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio can bar thousands of unvaccinated teachers and other public school workers from their jobs after the Second Circuit Court of Appeals lifted a temporary injunction preventing such a move. There is going to be a full procedure uh, in the course of this week and we're very, very confident that uh, the city, the part of education is going to prevail because we're trying to protect kids we're trying to protect families, we're trying to protect working people in our schools. Uh, We've been in court with this very same set of information, very same argument at both the state and the federal level. We've won previously. We expect to win again and quickly. The appellate court gave no reason for the decision on Monday other than saying the injunction that had been entered last Friday was for administrative purposes. This is all about the preliminary injunction. The underlying legal and constitutional challenges to the city policy are yet to be heard. The practical effect is that the largest school district in the country may now insist that all school employees and contractors be vaccinated. The mandate will go into effect on Friday at day's end. Joining me is Dorit Reese, a law professor at UC Hastings College of Law who specializes in vaccine policy. Were you surprised that the Second Circuit is allowing the vaccine mandate to go into effect?
4: Not really. My reading of the initial decision was the Second Circuit was coming in with the view that they needed a little more time to consider this. But these preliminary measures are unusual. Most of the time, courts don't stay a measure while the litigation is going on, and the bar for them is pretty high. So I was not very surprised.
3: So in this challenge, the public school teachers and aides claim the requirement for a vaccine violates their right to pursue their profession and discriminates against them. What's your take on that argument?
4: Neither of those is a very good argument. The first part, they violate their profession. They're trying to make a constitutional argument that it goes against the constitutional right. The problem they run into is that the standard for public health measures that limit individual rights is historically the standard set in Jacobson versus Massachusetts from 1905. And that's a very lenient standard towards the policymakers. The policymakers can limit individual rights in the public health under it, as long as the limits are reasonable. And teachers' school vaccine mandates in the middle of a pandemic, when many of the children can't be vaccinated yet, is probably going to be found reasonable. The second argument, discrimination argument, is even weaker. And here's why. First, unvaccinated workers are not situated similarly to vaccinated workers. Discrimination means treating the like case differently. But unvaccinated teachers are not situated similarly to vaccinated teachers. Unvaccinated teachers are at higher risk of getting COVID-19 than vaccinated teachers and at higher risk of transmitting it to the students. So they're not in the same category, and it's not any more discrimination than giving tickets for jaywalking just to jaywalkers and not to people who stand on the sidewalk. Second, even if the distinction wasn't as strong as it is, being an unvaccinated teacher is not a protected category. Choosing not to vaccinate is not equivalent to being part of a racial group, part of a religious group, etc. So that claim, too, isn't very strong.
3: Is the most recent Supreme Court precedent, that 1905 case that upheld a Massachusetts smallpox vaccination law,
4: So we refer to Jacobson because it's been upheld and relied on in many cases since. It's still the case that's often cited in discussions of public health. So while it's a really old case, the conclusions are echoed in a lot of more recent cases. So it's the latest case directly on point, but it has a very strong progeny and a very strong history since.
3: Is there a difference when a vaccine mandate comes from the federal government as opposed to the state or city? So federal versus local. Yes,
4: there is a difference, but it's not in the term of constitutional rights. The constitutional rights jurisprudence under Jacobson would apply to both state and state. However, the federal government has to face additional constraints. The federal government is one of limited power and it can only act within the sphere of its powers. The main power to regulate public health lies with the state. The federal government can do some of it under its other powers, such as the power to regulate interstate commerce, the power to regulate interstate travel, the power to add conditions when it funds programs. The federal government gives a lot of money to the state for a variety of things, and when it gives money, it can do it with conditions. So the federal government has limited powers to act in the public health, and you have to make sure any measure it takes is within those powers. The Supreme Court
3: denied review of Indiana University's vaccine mandate for employees and students in the shadow docket. But we also saw COVID restrictions struck down when it was due to religious reasons. Do you have any doubt that, let's say, if that 1905 case came to the Supreme Court now,
4: would they hold in the same way? I am very sure that if the 1905 Jacobson case came to the Supreme Court now, they would have held the same way. As you're correctly saying, there's a a number of things that go under this. Some of them are more complicated than others. First, Jacobson was eminently reasonable because it was a smallpox mandate imposed in the middle of an outbreak against a very dangerous disease, and the um, sanction was moderate, a fine. So that made it an easy case in many ways to uphold. You're correctly saying that there are different rubrics here. Jacobson was not addressed under religious freedom. Jacobson did not claim that he had religious objections to the vaccine. He was worried that the vaccine was unsafe. Religious freedom wasn't at the time protected against the state, only against the federal government. But today it is protected. Today it's protected against state action. And the Supreme Court has an elaborate jurisprudence on religious freedom that separates from the Jacobson jurisprudence. And right now it's unclear whether that jurisprudence would require a religious exemption from a vaccine mandate that also had a medical exemption. It's just unclear. I think there are good reasons to say no, that you don't have to give a religious exemption from a vaccine mandate, even if it has medical exemptions. First, because medical exemptions are part of the framework that creates the mandate. The goal of the mandate is to make sure that anyone who can be safely vaccinated is vaccinated to increase rates of vaccination enough to prevent outbreaks. Medical exemptions are part of that because they apply to people who cannot be safely vaccinated. Second, medical exemptions are probably constitutionally necessary under the And third, there's good reason to think that most religious exemptions to vaccines are by people whose opposition to vaccine is not religious, but most of them are insincere. So, requiring a religious exemption from a safety measure in a case where we know there's going to be extensive abuse of the exemption by people whose reasons are not religion, it's only further than the Supreme Court will go. But that's an assessment. We have to see what the Supreme Court will do with a case like this.
3: A three-judge federal panel is set to consider whether to delay a vaccine mandate affecting healthcare workers statewide in New York that doesn't provide an exemption for religious grounds. So you think that, from what you just said, that that will pass muster that vaccine mandate, even though it doesn't provide a religious
4: exemption? I think it's unclear whether the federal circuit will allow it, and the reason is that the Supreme Court jurisprudence created some uncertainty. The Supreme Court basically provided us conflicting sources. On one hand, in a series of shadowed docket cases that were not actually reasoned, so that didn't have a thorough explanation, the Supreme Court said, we don't want you to put in place measures that treat religious house of worship differently. On the other hand, in Fulton versus the City of Philadelphia, a case where the court directly asked, do you have to give a religious exemption from a general law? A majority of the Supreme Court said, We are keeping the old law for now, the law that says that you don't have to give a religious exemption from a generally applicable law. But there was a very, very strong dissent going the other way. Not dissent, because everybody agreed on the result in that case, but there was a very strong set of judges that would have liked to overturn that ruling. So right now, where the Supreme Court will go if it's directly faced with the question, here is a vaccine mandate. It doesn't give a religious exemption. It's a little bit unclear. And the Second Circuit, to be acting that uncertainty, could go either way. More and more workers are
3: applying for religious exemptions. For example, in L.A., about a quarter of the police department is expected to seek religious exemptions from vaccine mandates. Just explain what a worker has to show in order to get Mm -hmm. a
4: religious exemption. So there's two parts to the religious exemption claim. One is it has to be religious, and two, it has to be sincere. For religious, the federal jurisprudence suggests a three-part step. First, a religious is about fundamental a high-level questions, such as the meaning of life and things like that. So it has to address those kind of high-level ethical issues. Second, you can't just grab onto one religious verse. Your religious objection has to be part of a comprehensive belief system. And third, usually but not always, religious is accompanied by external signs and rites maybe something you were, maybe something you do. Again, this is not required. You can have very personal belief, but if you have those, it helps. What this test is trying to do is draw the line between things that are religious and things that are strongly held belief but not religious without limiting religion to belief in a deity or multiple deities. So that's the, the test for, is it religion? The second part is sincere, and that's where things get really hard. And that's one of the reasons, by the way, against requiring a religious exemption. The problem is that the test for sincerity is does the person hold a sincere religious belief, not does the religion object to the vaccine. So you can't require a letter from a clergy. You can't say if your religion supports vaccines. So for example, if you're a Catholic or a Jew, you don't have a, a real claim here. You can't say if your belief is irrational, we're not going to allow it because not about judging the rationality. That makes it really hard to police. And since we have good reasons to think that most of these people are opposing the vaccine not because of religious reasons, but because they've read online misinformation that scared them of the vaccine, we can expect extensive abuse of this. And that means that these exemptions are treated. Which is why, as you said. Some states are saying we won't give a release to them. We know it's very vulnerable to abuse. And we'll have to see where the courts stand on
3: this. With a vaccine mandate, when there's an option to get vaccinated or to take regular coronavirus tests, that seems to defeat the point of the mandate. Do you think courts, though, would require that there be that option?
4: Mm-hmm. So first of all, if, whether it defeats the point of the mandate depends on what the point of the mandate is. If you can get to a point where the tests are good enough that you can be reasonably sure the person probably doesn't have coronavirus, the testing might be a reasonable alternative. And the reason we are seeing a lot of places that do testing is that it gives an out to people who have very strong feeling against the vaccine, whilst putting in place something that makes refusing the vaccine harder. It's a reasonable option. I don't think course will require it, though. And that's because in some places, testing is not a good enough option. First, it's not clear that we have good enough testing to reliably tell us who's infected and who's not. Some people don't test positive until a little into their infection, but they can be contagious before. Second, vaccines and testing together add a large layer of security. And I think courts will say in this time of uncertainty, we will defer to the decision maker. And if the decision maker doesn't want to allow a testing option, they don't have to. They can conclude reasonably that it's not a good enough option.
3: Vaccine mandates are being challenged in state courts and federal courts all across the country. Do you think that they're likely to survive the court
4: challenges? I think vaccine mandates will survive broadly in the sense that most will be upheld. I expect there will be losses on an individual basis, on refusing an individual religious exemption, or maybe on the question of a religious freedom. But I expect the courts to give employers, states, the federal government, quite a bit of latitude in requiring vaccine as long as... So for the federal government, is a question, are they overstepping their powers? But other than that, I expect the courts to give quite a bit of latitude because judges live in this country as well. They see what's going on. There are aware that COVID-19 killed hundreds of thousands of Americans in the last two years, and they're likely to understand why health authorities why public health authorities and other officials are doing are reaching for mandates as a way to curb. It. Mandates aren't your ideal first option. I hoped we wouldn't be where we are, and I think few of us are happy that we're still dealing with coronavirus this late, but when the disease is raging, Mandates are in some ways the least worst options. They're better than letting people die.
3: Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show. That's Dort Reese, a professor at UC Hastings College of Law who specializes in vaccine policy.
0: You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers.
3: top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. On October 18th, Robert Durst will be returning to the Los Angeles courtroom where a jury convicted him of the execution-style murder of a close friend to be sentenced. For decades, mystery surrounded the millionaire real estate scion who was suspected not only of the murder of his friend, but also in the disappearance of his first wife and was actually tried and acquitted of the shooting of his next-door neighbor. But there's no mystery about his sentence. The 78-year-old Durst must be sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz, a partner at McCarter & English. The jury deliberated only about seven and a half hours in a trial where the prosecution presented 80 witnesses and introduced nearly 300 exhibits. They also came back with special circumstances on a 20-year-old murder. How surprising is that?
2: Well, it was an incredibly lengthy trial, and there were quite a few witnesses and a lot of evidence that was presented over the course of the 11-week presentation by the prosecution. And that was, of course, followed by weeks of testimony by Mr. Durst himself. But at the end of the day, prosecutors used Durst's own words against him. And in many ways, he was the best witness for the prosecution because they had all of this recorded testimony from him. They had his own statements made to prosecutors when he was arrested. They had the recordings they had made while he was in jail. And perhaps most damning They had his recorded testimony that he made in an HBO documentary where he made statements that prosecutors argued were essentially a confession to this crime.
3: Was it a mistake to put him on the stand? He testified to chopping up the body of a Texas neighbor he killed in self-defense to abandoning the body of his best friend after discovering her dead. And he admitted that he would lie to get out of trouble and that he had lied during sworn testimony in the past. Why put him on the stand?
2: That's a great question. And one of the biggest challenges that defense lawyers face in a criminal trial is whether or not to put their client on the stand to testify in their own defense. Generally, when defendants testify at their own trial, it does not end well for them. It gives prosecutors the chance to essentially retry their case and to cross-examine the defendant with all of the evidence that prosecutors had already presented as part of their case in chief. In this case, Mr. Durst had testified in his own defense in the trial in Galveston, where he essentially beat back the charges of murdering a man who was his roommate in Texas. And Ultimately, it was the decision of Mr. Durst to testify in his own defense in this trial. We don't really know whether that was over the objections of his own lawyers or not, but this is a case where you had a witness who was compelled to testify. He's obviously someone who longed for the spotlight, and it seemed out of character for him to sit by and not try to convince jurors that he, in fact, had not killed Susan Berman.
3: Bob, this was a 20-year-old murder, and how often are prosecutors able to bring cases in murder trials that happened decades ago? Is this
2: unusual? It's a highly unusual case because not only did prosecutors have to prove that Mr. Durst was the murderer of Susan Berman, but they essentially also had to try to prove that he had killed his first wife, Katie McCormick, because the theory of the prosecution's case was that Susan Berman was killed because she had damning evidence against him about the fact that he had killed his first wife. So prosecutors really had to lay out the proof that he was involved and responsible for both murders not only the murder of Susan Berman which occurred in 2000 but also the murder of his wife a case in which he had never been charged and who disappeared in 1982 so this was a very old case going back decades and decades And were it not for the unusual circumstances where Mr. Durst had gone on camera and made statements during that HBO documentary, it's unlikely that he ever would have been charged and convicted for Susan Berman's death.
3: Durst was not in the courtroom when the jury's verdict was read, and much was made of it at the time. Does a defendant have to be in the courtroom?
2: Usually, the defendant is in the courtroom unless they are acting in a way that's disruptive to the trial. But here, because of the very unusual COVID protocols, we had a situation where people were spread out throughout the courtroom, very unusual steps were taken. And in this case, Mr. Durst had been exposed to somebody who had COVID and therefore was not present in the courtroom when the verdict was read. Durst
3: is appealing on several grounds. One ground is that there was insufficient evidence to convict him because no murder weapon was ever recovered and there was no forensic evidence to prove that he killed his wife or Berman. Does that prove insufficient evidence to convict
2: well, that will be up for an appeals court to decide, but we did have a case here where there was no f- direct forensic evidence tying him to the murders. But there was other evidence, including not only the testimony of Durst himself, but the testimony of other witnesses for the prosecution. For example, there was a longtime friend of both Mr. Durst and Miss Berman, who testified that Mr. Durst had told him it was her or me referring to Berman. I had no choice, and prosecutors used that in their summation saying that those nine words summed up the entire case, that at that point, Mr. Durst felt that he had no choice but to kill Susan Berman, who was about to talk to police about the killing of his wife back in 1982.
3: But prosecutors don't need forensic evidence or a murder weapon to convict, do they? They could have a wholly circumstantial case and get a conviction.
2: No, that's absolutely right. And there are cases, of course, where people are are convicted of homicides where uh, no body is found, where there's no forensic evidence that ties them directly to the crime. For example, there's no murder weapon found. There's no DNA evidence that ties them. But prosecutors can still build a case circumstantially through other evidence, through testimony of witnesses. And at the end of the day, the standard that an appeals court will look at is whether or not a reasonable jury could have convicted based on the evidence that was presented at the trial
3: this was a trial that was held during covid and another one of the reasons for appeal is his attorneys say jurist was prevented from receiving a fair trial because of the lengthy delay of the proceedings his lawyers had called the 14-month delay the longest adjournment in u.s history featuring the same jury and argued that the jurors could have forgotten information from the start of the trial, discussed the case with others, or watched television programs about the case. Is that valid, the judge making the decision that after 14 months he was going to go ahead with the same jury?
2: Well, it's certainly an issue that you could expect the defense lawyers to raise because anytime you have an unusual circumstance, something that has not been typically seen in a criminal trial, defense lawyers will always argue that their client has been prejudiced by that. So in this case, you do have this very unusual circumstance where the trial was started and then it was paused for an extended period of time due to COVID, and they're going to argue that their client didn't get a fair trial because of that. What the appeals court is going to do is look at the entire transcript of the trial and determine whether or not the defendant was in fact prejudiced, and even if he was, whether it was so severe that it would have changed the outcome of the trial. So these are the type of issues that you expect to be raised on appeal. These are the type of issues that I think, unless they're really extraordinary, unless they can point to a specific prejudice that resulted from the delay, I think it's unlikely to sway the appeals court and unlikely that it will result in a new trial for Mr. Durst.
3: Another point of appeal is that the judge made an error in allowing jurors to see that HBO documentary, The Jinx. That's pretty unusual to allow them to see a documentary, isn't it?
2: Again, another very unusual aspect of this case, and again an issue that defense lawyers will make a big deal about and try to suggest that their client was prejudiced by allowing jurors to sit through that documentary. It is highly unusual, but it's also highly unusual for the defendant to have made some of the statements that he made during that documentary uh, that prosecutors say amounted essentially to a confession to those crimes
3: this point interested me the judge excluded evidence of possible sightings of kathy durst in new york city
2: well mr durst's first wife Went missing back in 1982, and although prosecutors alleged during the trial that he was responsible for her murder, he was never charged with that crime. So, one of the strategies the defense was using here was to try to argue that, in fact, she may not have even been dead. Her body was never found, a murder weapon was never found, and the judge in this case, though, found the evidence to be so attenuated that he did not let it go in front of the jury. Whether or not ultimately that amounts to reversible error will be something for the appeals court to decide. It really would depend. on, in my view, how credible that evidence was about a Kathy Durst sighting. Obviously, she had been declared legally dead many years ago, and there was very little evidence to suggest that she was still alive, but whether or not it is something that should have been before the jury so they could consider the possibility that she is missing all these years and, and not actually dead is something that the appeals court will have to look at and decide whether that evidence was credible enough that it should have gone to jurors for their consideration.
3: As you mentioned, Durst was never charged in connection with his wife's disappearance, despite investigations by the New York Police Department, the state police, the Westchester County District Attorney's Office. After the verdict was announced, the family of Kathy Durst, issued a statement calling on prosecutors to pursue a case in her death as well. Would that be an even more difficult case to bring at this point?
2: It would be an even more difficult case because she went missing back in 1982, and at this point, based upon this conviction and assuming it's not overturned, Mr. Durst will get a sentence of life without parole. So prosecutors would have to look at that, decide whether or not there was a possibility of actually getting a conviction in a case that was that old, and also whether or not it warranted them spending the time and the money and the resources to pursue a criminal case in which a defendant was already serving life without parole.
3: Bob, before I let you go, tell me what you think the defense's strategy was here and why it failed
2: strategy of the defense here was to try to portray their client as a hapless, socially awkward man who just makes poor decisions and was in the wrong place at the wrong time. He ran twice rather than contacting the police. And they tried to paint him as somewhat of a victim of ambitious prosecutors and deceptive filmmakers. But ultimately, the jury seemed to reject that characterization of Mr. Durst. He admitted to prosecutors that he lied and he admitted in perhaps one of the highest points of drama during the trial that not only had he lied in the past, but he would lie today if he had to. He was asked by the prosecutor, did you kill Susan Berman? And he answered that he didn't. The prosecutor then followed up and said, but if you did, you would lie about it, correct? To which Mr. Durst replied, correct. That was essentially the completion of the self-destruction of Mr. Durst on the stand. He really sealed his own fate, first by talking to the HBO documentary makers and putting himself back in the spotlight, and then making that bathroom confession, according to prosecutors, where he walked off of camera, went into the bathroom, not knowing that his mic was still on unaware that he's being recorded, and said, what the hell did I do? killed them all, of course. Prosecutors used that as a confession by Mr. Durst to the crime. The defense tried to argue that those statements were taken out of context and didn't mean what they appeared to mean, but ultimately, that was a very difficult statement for the defense to have to deal with, and ultimately, the jury simply did not find him credible.
3: Thanks, Bob. That's Robert Mintz of MacArthur in English. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm
1: June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun from May 14th to 16th.